Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. Thank you. Good morning. It is good to be here with you guys today with my family. Um, as Tim said, um, my family's been kind of in and out of town the last couple weeks, um, visiting other churches, and it's good to be here with you guys again today. Um, I'm not Pastor Tim. Uh, my name is Aaron, and my, my wife and our four boys were members here at the Avenue. We've been coming here for about four and a half years, and um, we are getting ready to head out, Lord willing, in a couple weeks, um, early March, mid-March, um, to go overseas. and. As uh, Tim just asked me to, to share with you guys again, kind of before we head out, um, I just was reflecting on like, what, what can I share with my church family? If I had one thing to say, if I, could just, if I could just share the most important thing, what would it be? And I kept coming back to this story because this story is a really important story for me in my faith journey and in my understanding of who I am and who God is and what he calls us to be. And so... I want to share it with you and share a little bit of my story along with it in the hopes that we can all glean something and learn something and grow closer to Jesus. And so um, some of you may know a little bit about me and about our family and where we're headed, but I haven't really had the opportunity to share about my backstory with very many of you. As a lot of you probably, I was raised in a Christian family um, and uh, accepted Jesus at a really young age, raised in the church. My parents were always really intentional about teaching us about God and helping us to memorize scripture and have devotions and be involved in church. And they did a great job of being an example for us uh, as we were growing up, what it meant to follow Jesus. And I'm really thankful for the investment and the time and the energy that they gave to that. But there was a problem in my life, and that was um, that I also grew up under some pretty unique circumstances. Uh, I grew up as a missionary kid. My parents moved overseas when I was in the third grade, and I grew up in Spain. Um, and as a missionary kid, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of people looking at you. I grew up before we went overseas kind of visiting churches and standing up in front of people. And how many, how many pastor's kids do we have in here? Raise your hand if you're a pastor's kid. A couple, all right? I've heard that it's the same. I'm not a pastor's kid, but I've heard that it's really similar. There's a lot of people looking at you all the time, and you kind of feel like you have to say the right things and dress the right way and, and behave the right way um, because there's a lot of expectation on your shoulders. On top of that, I'm the oldest of four siblings. So how many oldest siblings do we have in here? My people. All right. You know what it is to be raised under the iron fist of mom and dad while you're younger siblings get to do whatever they want. You come home from college and they mouth off to mom and you're just waiting for the beat down and mom just kind of rolls her eyes and you're like, are you kidding me? Mom, did, did you just hear what he just said? And she rolls her eyes. She's like, he'll be fine. You turned out all right. Yeah, because yeah, I got beat when I said <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, yeah, we know what it's like. Um, so I'm the oldest of four siblings. I was a missionary kid and then to top it all off, my dad was the principal of my school all growing up. Yeah. So he was a teacher, and then he was the principal from like fifth grade all the way to 12th grade. And so I grew up with a lot of 
expectation on my shoulders, whether my parents ever said that to me or my teachers ever said that to me, I felt it. And I don't know that I ever processed it consciously until I got older, but I was a really conscientious kid and I, I just kind of grew up wanting to please. And, and so, you know, even though I knew the right answers in my head about who I was and, and, and that I'm not saved by my works, but I'm saved by God's grace and because of his sacrifice for me, the outworking of my faith was really performance-based. And it was really like, if I do the right things and say the right things and I stay out of trouble and my parents are happy with me and my teachers are happy with me and my coaches are happy with me, then I'm good. How many can identify with that? I think a lot of us. Um, and so the, the result of that was that as I got a little bit older, as I got into high school, I started developing a real anxiety about whether I was doing things right or not. And what did God think of me? I knew there were people in scripture like King David and like Job and like Noah that God was like, these are the most righteous people on earth. These are, this is a man after my own heart that he was really proud of. And I knew there were people in scripture like King Saul and maybe like Jonah and others, you know, kings of Judah and stuff that he was like, or kings of Israel who he was like, hmm, he was really disappointed in them. And I started to wonder, what does God think of me? And I've got like journal entries and stuff that I wrote in high school. When I look back, I'm like, man, I was really like anxious about this and really um, doubtful. And I'm going to come back to my story a little bit later, but this story really God used to help open my eyes. I, I knew that the most important commandment was to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. But I never really connected with that. I, uh, I never felt any emotion towards God growing up. And not to say that love is just emotion, but it is also emotion. And I never really understood how I could just manufacture that kind of love for God. But I knew that in, in John, Jesus said, whoever loves me will obey me. And so I thought, well, maybe if, if love is obedience, then obedience is love. And maybe if I just obey, then that's like God's love language or something. And he's like, okay, you're obeying me, so that means you love me. And, and I was like, I, I, I don't know, if I can't manufacture this love for God, maybe I can just at least obey him and, that's, and that counts. And so that was always like my aim. But I had it all wrong. Before I get into this um, passage, I just want to pray real quickly. And so if you could pray for me, and I would also ask if there's a couple of you who would be willing to just, under your breath, say a couple of prayers for me as I'm speaking. Um, I'd really appreciate that too. So just bow our heads. Speak, Lord. The people are listening. Open up our eyes to see you anew today. Open up our ears, not just to hear your word, but to understand. You said to us, you've given the keys of the kingdom, God. Help us. Help us to understand who you are and to fall in love with you more today than we were yesterday. We love you. So before I get into this passage, just two kind of interesting things about it. One thing that I discovered as I was studying this passage is that this is a story that appears in all four gospel accounts. And that's really kind of unusual. There aren't very many stories of Jesus that appear in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
even like Jesus' birth, which we would think is kind of an important story, doesn't even appear in John. And so this seems like a little side story. A lady comes, she anoints Jesus' feet, and he's like, wow, she's done something really cool. And it seems like a side story, but it appears in all four Gospels, which indicates that this is key. And actually, in the versions in, in Matthew and in Mark, Jesus tells his disciples afterwards, he says, I tell you the truth, in the future, whenever the good news is preached, what this woman has done will be told. Her story will be told in memory of her. So it shows us this is, this is central to Jesus' mission and to Jesus' message. I think that's important for us to remember going into it. Actually, there's several different versions of this story and several different details, and they're significant enough that scholars think that this actually probably happened to Jesus more than once. Probably happened twice, at least, maybe three times, which is a really strange thing to have happen to you more than once, right? Someone to walk in while you're eating dinner and start crying on your feet and wiping them with their hair and pouring perfume on you. You might think about changing your locks if that happened more than once. Um, but regardless, this is, this is central. And we're going to be camping out in Luke today because Luke's version includes a parable that the other three gospel accounts don't include. And, and this parable is what really got to me and that God used to, to change my perspective. So in, uh, in Luke's account, this happens early in Jesus' ministry. In fact, Jesus had been baptized. He comes out of the wilderness and is tested in the wilderness in chapter 4. And this happens in chapter 7. And between chapter 4 and chapter 7, Jesus goes around causing chaos. He goes to his hometown, Nazareth, and announces that this prophecy of the Messiah is fulfilled today in your presence. And they try to throw him off a cliff. Then he goes and he heals the, the man who they let down through the roof, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And they say, that's blasphemy. Then he, uh, he starts calling his disciples, and he goes over to Matthew, the tax collector's house, to Levi's house, and starts eating and drinking there. And the Pharisees are like, why are you eating and drinking with sinners and with tax collectors? They start questioning him more. Why are your disciples not fasting? Then he starts breaking the Sabbath. And they're like, whoa, who are you? It gets so crazy to the point that even John the Baptist's disciples come to him right before this story. And they're like, dude, you're doing a lot of crazy things. Are you like the guy or are you just a crazy guy and we should be waiting for somebody else? And it says Jesus turns around and he heals a bunch of people and he casts out demons and he gives sight back to the blind. And then he turns back to John's disciples and says, go tell John everything that you just saw and heard and tell him blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And that sets us up for this story because everyone is asking themselves, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Um, and Simon the Pharisee is one of those people who was curious. Uh, he invites Jesus over to his house. I think he was legitimately curious, kind of like Nicodemus. I want to find out who this guy is. I want to sit down with him, find out what kind of man he is. And we know that it wasn't just the Pharisee and Jesus and his disciples because later it says the other guests. And so probably it was Simon the Pharisee and his other Pharisee friends. And he says, let's get together. Let's all get in a room and let's, let's talk. And so back in the day when you would have a special dinner like this, um, it was customary. They might have had the dinner out in the courtyard where there was kind of space to accommodate everybody or in a large inner room. And they had these low tables and everyone would recline at the table. They'd kind of lay on one elbow with their head toward the table and their feet sticking out behind them, uh, kind of in a circle around the table. But they would leave the gate to the courtyard open or the door to the house open so that uninvited guests could also come in and they could sit along the wall and they could listen to the conversation. And they did this because they didn't have AFR back then. They didn't have American Family Radio. And this was a way for them to listen to their, their 
cultural leaders, the religious leaders talk about the important issues of the day. It was entertainment and it was instruction. But you get the scene. There's a lot of people here in the courtyard packed hearing what is Jesus going to say and what is he going to do now. So in verse 36, I'm going to kind of go through this story and just summarize a little bit and then um, uh, connect that back to my story. In verse 36, it says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, we don't know who this woman is. It doesn't ever give her name. We don't know what her sin was. In some translations, she's called a woman of the city. Um, we do know that her sin was public. We know that she had a reputation, and it would imply that she was probably involved in prostitution. We can also guess that she might have been a Gentile, because if she had been a Jew living this way, she would have been stoned, right? Remember the woman caught in adultery that they wanted to stone? She possibly was a Gentile, okay? We don't know all this for sure, but she shows up with this jar of perfume, and that also is evidence maybe that her, she was involved in prostitution. In Proverbs, it talks about the temptress, the prostitute, uh, who tries to uh, lure men into her house, and she says, my bed is, is prepared with perfumes and with cinnamon and with aloes. This was, this was a tool of their trade. And so the fact that she shows up here with this jar of perfume um, indicates maybe that this is who she was. Verse 38 says, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, I don't think that this was the game plan. I don't think she sat at home and going, I'm going to go and see Jesus, and I'm going to cry all over his feet, and I'm going to wipe him up with my hair, and I'm going to pour perfume. That's a good idea. Maybe it was, but I, I wonder if she came there to honor Jesus. Maybe she came there to anoint his head with perfume to, as, a, as, a, as a way of honoring him and showing him thanks. We know that just before this, he had just healed a bunch of people and cast out demons and given sight to the blind. Maybe some, she was someone who had received something like that, and, and, and she was coming to say thank you to honor him. Maybe her intention was to donate this to Jesus. We know from the chapter that comes after this that there were many women who gave of their own means to support Jesus' ministry. And we know from other accounts of this story that this jar of perfume could have been worth up to a year's wages, maybe $50,000 in today's money. I don't know. We don't know what her intention was, but I do know that she came to honor Jesus. Her intention was to honor him. And I think rather it probably played out something like this where there's all these people sitting around eating and she shows up in the doorway and kind of people look up and there's like, haven't I seen her before? Oh, I know who that is. And, and, and the Pharisees who were all there, they spent their whole life trying to stay away from people like this. And I can imagine them getting up to their feet and going, what are you doing here? You're not welcome here. Get out of here. And I can see her locking eyes with Jesus and realizing she's about to create a big scene here that she wasn't expecting and wasn't planning on, and she makes her way toward them, and maybe the Pharisees call their servants, get her out of here. I imagine her running and throwing herself at Jesus' feet and crying. The word here for, for weeping is not just like one tear that you just kind of wipe away, but she's bawling by this point. She's making a scene. She's embarrassed. She's ashamed. This was not the plan. And I see Jesus just putting up his hand and watching her, and everybody's silent, and she's just crying. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. 
He says, there's no way this guy can receive special revelation from God because he doesn't even have common sense. We all know who this is. You ever questioned God's character because he didn't fit in your box? Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And Jesus tells him this parable. Verse 41, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them do you think will love him more? Jesus tells him this story, this kind of financial parable about guy who, guys who, two guys who owed money. Now, a denarius was one day's wage, and so one guy owes 500 days' wages, so like a year and a half of wages, maybe like $50,000, and another guy owes 50 days' wages, a month and a half, maybe $5,000. And Jesus says, both of them, when the creditor came to collect his money, they couldn't pay him. And so he forgave them, which would have been unheard of, for a creditor to be like, it's all right. I got it. It's on the house. He forgave them, and Jesus said, which one do you think loved him more? And, and, and Simon goes, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Anybody with student loans in here? If you had $2,000 of student loans and it got forgiven, you'd be like, woo If you had $200,000 of student loans and it forgiven, you'd be crying. I guarantee you. That's life-changing, right? And he's just pointing out the obvious, like, doesn't it make sense? I love Jesus says, you have judged correctly. Which is kind of ironic because just a minute ago, Simon made a very incorrect judgment. Jesus kind of almost puffs him up here and says, you're a good judge. You figured it out. Good job, Simon. But I think here's the point. Verse 44, he turns toward the woman and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? Because I know you see her sin. Do you see this woman? I came to your house. You're the host. You're supposed to welcome me in. But you didn't give me any water for my feet, as was the custom back then. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss of greeting. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head like they would do back then to honor a special guest. But she has poured perfume on my feet. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, Simon, by your own logic, isn't what she's doing here right? Doesn't it make sense? I think he told him this story to get Simon off her back, right? To get the Pharisees off her back and to honor her and to say what you're doing is right. But verse 47 is what really got me years ago. It says, then he turned toward the woman, or I'm sorry, he said, Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves only a little. When I read it the first time, I read it in the New Living Translation, and it says, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little, shows only a little love. Remember my story when I was in high school and really anxious about what God thought of me, really anxious about whether I was doing things right. Well, I had a friend named Adam Young 
who went to my school in Spain, the little small Christian school that I grew up in. He was a few years older than me, but he and I were very similar. He was also a missionary kid, also a really conscientious student, um, good guy. Uh, we played soccer together. He and I grew up together, and so we, we knew each other well, and we were like the same. And then his family went back to the States one year and took a year furlough in the States, and I didn't see him for that whole year. And when he came back, he was a different guy. He was on fire for Jesus. And I had never seen a transformation in somebody so similar to myself. When he came back, we'd go out to lunch to like play soccer and he was talking to people about Jesus. Which is weird, when you grow up in a Christian school, it's like, not, that's not cool. Like we spend a lot of time in the Bible and stuff and I just wanna play soccer. Um, and he started a youth group for kids at my Christian school so that if anybody wanted to hang out after school and keep worshiping God, they could. That was really weird, but we all went to it because we were all missionary kids and that's what you have to do. Um, I remember sitting in chapel one day. We had these chapels once a week, these mandatory chapels, and it was about a room maybe this size, and I was sitting in the back. I was a junior in high school, sitting in the back with the juniors and seniors because that's where the, where the cool kids sat. And the only chairs that were left were the front row chairs for the sixth and seventh graders, and that's where they sat. I remember sitting back there and noticing he wasn't sitting with us anymore. He had gone up to sit with the sixth graders on the front row right up in the corner. And I remember sitting there, we were like singing these like 90s worship songs. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. Whatever it was, I don't remember what it was. But I remember standing in the back row and singing this song and then looking up at him and he has his hands in the air, his eyes are closed, there's tears running down his face, <laughs> and he's just, sometimes he's just beating his breast as he's singing, and he's just crying in the front row. And I remember thinking, what, what has gotten into this guy? What in the world, is this a show? It can't be real. What in the world does he know that I don't know? I probably should have asked him. I never did. Instead, I just let it kind of torment me. And I went back and I was reading the Bible one day in my room and I was reading this story. And I got to this part, verse 47. I tell you her sins and they are many have been forgiven. And so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. And it was like a light bulb went off. And I was like, no wonder. He must, have, he must have had some like deep, dark sin that nobody knew about, some, some, something he was addicted to or something that God freed him from, and so that's why he can show all this love. But I don't have anything like that. And it was like this realization like, what are you saying, God? I've spent my whole life trying to stay out of trouble and do things right. I thought my obedience equaled love, but now it's almost like you're telling me your obedience excludes you from love. You're never going to be able to have that kind of relationship with me because you don't have a cool testimony. I'd always been kind of ashamed of my testimony. I was saved when I was four. People would be like, when you tell your testimony, you need to tell people how you were different before and how God changed you. And I was like, I don't, 
And so I remember getting angry as I read this, and I remember actually taking my Bible and just kind of throwing it across, my, across the room. Like, I've been struggling with this for years, and I've been trying to do the right thing, and you're going to tell me I'm excluded from that kind of relationship with you? How's that fair? I just kind of let it eat away at me for two years until I went to college. And in college, randomly, I was just reading through the Gospels, and I got to this story. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that story. But a part of this story jumped out at me that I had just skipped over the first time. And it's in verse 42. So I'm going to go back and read 41 and 42. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other owed him 50. Verse 42. But neither of them had the money to pay him back. And I remember it just dawned on me when I was two years later in college. It just like hit me like a ton of bricks. When Jesus asked... Who loved him more? The correct answer isn't the one who owed the bigger debt. The correct answer is both of them because they're both in the same boat. They're both going straight to prison. You remember the other story of the, the man who owed money and the king said, throw him in prison until he can pay every last cent? That was where they were headed. And it was like all these other verses that I had learned growing up just kind of came back in waves. Uh, James 2.10, that whoever obeys the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is just as guilty as the one who's broken the whole law. He's guilty of breaking the whole law. And I, I remember realizing, I thought I was Simon in this story, but I'm the woman. I'm in the same boat. I remember uh, the, the next verse that came to me was Matthew 6. 23, I had just been reading through the gospel, so it was fresh on my mind. And Jesus tells people at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if the light that you think you have is really darkness, how deep is that darkness? I remember just, just crying and just saying, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. The light that I thought I had was really darkness. I thought I was... One way, Lord, but I'm, I'm the woman in this story, and I didn't even know it. For the first time in my life, the full weight of my sin and my need and the greatness of God's love engulfed me. And my relationship with God has not been the same since that day. And it's not to say that I've figured things out because I haven't, because this remains a daily struggle. The, the years of my life that I spent trying to perform and trying to work and trying to do the right things and say the right things have caused spiritual ruts in my soul that are so easy for me to fall back into. And if I don't preach this story to myself every day, it's so easy for me to fall back into the same patterns, into the same lies that if I just can have my quiet time today, if I can just say some prayers at this point, if I can just have devotions with my kids before they go to bed, I'm okay. And if I can preach at church, then I'm okay for at least another six months. It's a daily battle. It's a daily battle. See, the point of this story isn't only some people can love God. The point of this story is your love for God will only ever amount to your estimation of your need for him. The point of this story is not 
Only some people can love God. The point of this story is your love for God will only ever amount to your estimation of your need for him. And I think that was Simon's error, right? And Simon's worldview and Simon's understanding of who he was and who God was, it was like God, Pharisees, me, and sinners. That's how he saw it. When the reality is, it's God and everybody else. And I think that's why Paul said, I'm chief among sinners. Put me at the bottom of the list. That's who I am. And I think so many times we know that in our head, but it doesn't connect with our heart. We go, yeah, I know that it's God and then it's sinners. But really, who's at the bottom of your list? Liberals, Islamic terrorists, Trump supporters, we're getting real personal. Who's at the bottom of your list? Who are the people we look down on? Who are the people that we judge? Are you really at the bottom of your list? Or is there a hierarchy somewhere where you're comparing yourself to other people? It's something we got to rediscover, something we got to get in touch with, our need for Jesus. So what do you do if you're stuck? What do you do if you know this cognitively but it's never connected with your heart? I can't do that. And nothing I say up here right now is going to do that for you. It's, it's a work of the Spirit, but I know what you, where we can start. We can ask for it. We can pray. I think that's one of the things... Maybe I had here some kind of application points. Number one, we need to pray. Matthew 7, 7 through 11 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? And if you then, though you are evil know how to give good gifts to your own children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask of him? If this is the most important thing to God, that we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's a good gift. We should be asking for it every day. God, grow me in love for you. This is what Paul said to the Ephesians. He said, I pray that your roots would go down deep into God's love. It's the foundation. We love because he loved us first, and if we don't understand his love for us, how can we ever be expected to love him back or love anybody else? It's the most important thing. We need to increase our prayers. We need to be praying more because prayer in and of itself is an admission that I don't have all the right answers. I don't have the joy I need. I don't have the patience I need. I don't have the kindness I need. I don't have the grace I need. In each moment of each day, I need you. And even if we don't feel it, we don't feel like praying in our hearts, if we take that time to stop and to pray, we come, we come in touch with our need and with our true identity and with, with the gulf that separates us from God and and. and how it's him who crosses that gulf to us to give us what we need in those moments. Number two, we need to devote ourselves daily to the work of repentance. 
This is something I feel like we are, I feel like the church is getting away from. Maybe that's just my experience. But I think we see it not just in the church where we don't always have time to confess, where we don't always walk through that together as a community. I think we see it in the world at large where we have leaders who are not willing to own up to their mistakes and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I see it all the way down to the middle school kids that I teach who bump somebody in the hallway and instead of saying, oh, I'm sorry, I just want to fight them. Tim Keller said, if your view of your sin is small, your view of God's grace will be small. If your view of your sin is small, your view of God's grace will be small. And guys, I've, I've challenged people with this before, and I can't tell you how many people have objected to it. They've said, yeah, but I'm not a sinner. Like, I sin, but that's not my identity. I'm a child of God. I'm more than a conqueror. If God has removed my sins from me as far away as the east is from the west, why should I dwell on my sin? Why should I spend time thinking about all the things that I do wrong and repenting, repenting, repenting? God's already forgiven me for all that. I don't need to dwell on that anymore. Church, the devil can quote scripture too. Where do you want me to start, the Old Testament or the New? Let's look at the people of Israel. They were the children of God. They, had received, they were supposed to be receiving all of God's promises. They were God's chosen people, a special people. The royal priesthood was there. And how many times did God tell them to repent? How many times did he tell them, remember who you are, remember where you came out of Egypt, remember where I brought you from, remember that you were nobody, and I made you something. I made you my bride. I made you my special possession. Remember, teach it to your kids. Write, bind it on your wrist. Put it on your door frames. Tattoo it to yourself if you have to. Remember who I am. Remember who you were. Remember how much you need me. Don't forget. In Revelation, John writes those letters that are dictated to him from Jesus himself to the seven churches. And out of those seven letters, five of them call the churches to repent. Those are children of God, more than conqueror people, forgiven people. And Jesus says, you gotta keep repenting. Repent. It's not something that's just one and done. It's something we need to get back in touch with. Uh, James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other. How many times do we get together at Bible study or small group or family group and it's like, yeah, I need prayer for my grandma and I need prayer for my brother and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But how many times do we open up and say, I keep losing it with my kids and I said some things I, I regret, and it's like I don't have control over my temper sometimes. How many times do we go to people and we say, I need prayer because I'm on my phone all the time, and I can't stop. And it's getting in the way of time with the Lord. It's getting in the way of time with my family. And I need prayer because I'm broken, and I, I, I need some help. We got to get back to this. We got to practice it. In your prayers, confess, repent with your kids. 
I was wrong. I'm sorry. At work, at school, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Number three, we need to grow in humility. How do you do that? That's not something you just pray for and God zaps you with it, right? Well, I think we all know if you, two prayers you don't pray. You don't pray for patience and you don't pray for humility. <laughs> pray for patience and you end up with four kids like me. Um, how do we grow in humility? I think Paul taps into it when he says, I'm chief among sinners. He knew where he belonged on the list. And it's easy to look at him and say, yeah, but he like killed people and imprisoned Christians and like persecuted the church. Like, of course he was chief among sinners. Can you say that and believe it about yourself? Look at the example of Jesus in Philippians 2. Who being in very nature God, did not consider his position with God as something to be held on to, but made himself nothing. And humbled himself and took on the form of a man and humbled himself even to the point of death. And not just death, but death as a sinner. He put himself on the bottom of the list. He served his disciples. He said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to wash your feet. And he calls us to wash each other's feet. He put himself at the bottom. He considered us as more important than himself, not in a theological way, but he, he served us to show us that example, right? And he calls us to do the same. And the only way we're going to do that is if we have an accurate understanding of who we are. Jesus said, don't judge by human standards, but judge with righteous judgment. I asked my wife, how do we grow in humility? Like, what can I say up here? It's such a hard thing. And one of the things she said was, she said, well, I think one of the ways we can do it is by putting, in ourselves, putting ourselves in positions where we're uncomfortable and we're out of our depth and we don't, um, we don't have the answers. It makes us understand that we need God. It makes us understand we don't have it all together. And, uh, I think there's a lot of truth in that too, and that leads into my next point. I think one of the ways that we rediscover our need for Jesus is to pursue life by faith, and that involves getting uncomfortable. Which is so antithetical to what it means to be an American, <laughs> right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, we, need to, we need to pursue life by faith. This woman, this woman gave up everything. Just like the disciples, when Jesus called them, left their nets and left their boats, left the tools of their trade behind them and said, I'll follow you at whatever cost. This woman comes and she pours out everything that she has at Jesus' feet. She says, I'm done with that way of life. I'm done with it, Lord. I don't know what's next, but I'm here. And I want to thank you. And I want to honor you. And Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
How are you pursuing life by faith? We need to be more willing to cross the street, to talk to our neighbors and ask how I can be praying for you. That's uncomfortable. What about giving beyond your means when you feel like God's leading you to, to that? Beyond what you have designated, beyond what you have budgeted for, beyond what you may have available? What about welcoming foreigners into your house or going over to their house? <laughs> you want to do some of that? Get in touch with Anna Adams. Where is she? Right there, back there in the back. She'll put you in touch with some people. How are you pursuing life by faith? To what extent are your primary pursuits in life safety and comfort? How many of your decisions, day-to-day -day decisions, revolve around, is this going to be safe, and is this going to make my life easier or less easy? Something to chew on. My old pastor used to say, Jesus only sees two types of people, those who know how much they need him and those who don't know how much they need him. Because we all need him the same. There's no hierarchy of need. That's one of the things about the parable that Jesus told. You know, it's, he told this financial parable. But where it breaks down is if you owe money and you know you're going to prison, you find some way to pay the money. If you owe $5,000, you get some family to help pay. You get some friends to chip in. You start a GoFundMe. You get that money paid so you can get out of prison. But when we're talking about a spiritual reality, the spiritual reality that Jesus wanted to communicate to Simon was that even if you just owe $1 in spiritual currency, the gap between you and being able to be right with your creditor is eternal. It's eternal. Simon and the woman both needed Jesus the same amount. The difference was one of them knew it and one of them didn't. And the people who came to Jesus aware of their need and the people who came to Jesus and threw themselves at his feet and said, God, have mercy on me. The people who came and said, God, I need you to heal my son. The people who came to him and said, I want my sight. Those were the people God was able, Jesus was able to meet the needs of their heart, to lift them up, give them what their soul desired. And everyone who came to him like Simon, questioning, trapping, judging, with some kind of agenda, Jesus was never able to do anything for them. Your love for God will only ever amount to your estimation of your need for him. Do you know how much you need him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. We want to love you more. Sometimes we.
read Psalms, like what David said, my whole body thirsts for you. And we just don't connect with that. And we want to, Jesus. We want to thirst for you. We want to love you. We want to connect with you. Help us to understand your love. Help us to grow in the love of God. We want to be like trees planted by streams of water whose roots go down deep into your love. Whose leaves don't wither. That produce fruit in and out of season because we're grounded in the love of our Savior. Paul prayed that all of God's people would have the power to understand the love of God that we can never understand it fully. And Jesus, I pray that same prayer over us today.